The first reading is from from Judges, uh, chapter 6 and verses 11 to 16, page 248 on the church's Bibles. That's Judges 6, 11 to 16. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. The second reading starts a few verses later at verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messages throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is, o- if there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 20,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Hundreds of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley.
Thank you to our readers, and uh, welcome to the story of Gideon, uh, this particular tale from the Dark Age, as we've said. Now, we might think Gideon and have various mental associations. We might think, oh, Gideon's fleece, not to be confused with the golden fleece that the Argonauts were after. We might think Gideon, oh, the, the 300 who marched against Midian and defeated it against outstanding odds, not to be confused with uh, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. Uh, we might think Gideon, oh, the sword of Gideon, not to be confused with the sword of Damocles hanging, hanging over rulers. Easy, uh, I think that uh, makes the point, to mythologize and to caricature some of these Old Testament stories that we might have remembered a bit about from maybe decades ago at Sunday school and picked up a few things about them, but we got a very vague sense of what they teach us today. So it's easy to mythologize, but it's hard and important to think what do these characters actually teach us as Christians in the 21st century today. This uh, particular judge of Israel is, takes up a much bigger space than some of them, three chapters worth of material, chapters six to eight are all about uh, Gideon in Judges. We've only had a section of that read out, of course, but uh, Simon will be glad to know that we will have a think about the whole of those chapters, uh, and we will not simply leave it at the cliff edge that we left it at in the reading. These three chapters present a character for us in Gideon uh, who can be summed up with three Fs. Somebody who was fearful, who was faithful, and who was foolish. So firstly, chapter 6 of Judges, Gideon the fearful. Gideon's told in verse 14 of chapter 6, which we did have read out, Go! in the strength you have, and save Israel. Go. But as soon as that commission's given, excuses start coming out. Verse 15. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Excuses which might be reminiscent for us of Moses at the burning bush when he was given a commission and came up with all sorts of excuses as to why it couldn't possibly be him that did this. But God confirms, as he did at the burning bush, that actually he hasn't made a mistake, and he really does want Gideon to go and do this. I will be with you, he says in verse 16. Take heart and go. But despite that commission and that confirmation, Gideon still seeks further reassurances the first of which we didn't have read out, it comes up at the end of chapter 6, when he says, show me a sign. And the angel who's given him the commission miraculously does give him a sign that confirms the commission when he creates a miraculous barbecue of uh, meat and buns that uh, Gideon puts before him. And the second reassurance that he seeks, we did have read out, which is the fleeces, uh, right at the end of the chapter, an ominous introduction to that little particular section in verse 36. Uh, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, dot, dot, dot. Uh, not words that should really go together. If you'll do this as you have promised. Gideon's saying, uh, okay, you've said you will save Israel through me. And you've sent an angel to tell me that explicitly in person. 
and you've given me a sign already to confirm that is the case with the barbecue, and I've actually begun to do the work you've given me to do, because there's also an episode where he destroys an altar of Baal. But despite that, I still need further reassurance, because I'm not sure if you're going to do as you've promised, because Gideon was fearful. And so he comes up with these tests for God in verse 37 and 39. 37, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around is dry, then I will know. And then again in verse 39, let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. Only with a direct epiphany from an angel and with a very clear instruction from God and an easy start to the work of saving Israel, which he's been given, and with not one, not two, but now three signs will Gideon finally agree to go and do what he's been asked to do by God. It's remarkable in that context how much of the Christian world, certainly in the past and to some extent still does, think of laying a fleece as an authentic way of knowing God's will, or putting out a fleece, as you might put it. Uh, Gideon resorted, as we can see, to that method as out of weakness, not out of faith. If faith had governed what Gideon had been up to, he would have taken God at his word. He wouldn't have questioned it. He wouldn't have paraphrased, uh, prefaced his request with, if, if you're going to do as you've said. The wrongness of the practice of laying out a fleece is highlighted that second time, as I say, with uh, how Gideon starts it off in verse 39. Do not be angry with me, he says to God. Let me make just one more request, because really he knows he shouldn't be doing this again. There is no guarantee that God will act in the same way as he did then. He did deign with Gideon to actually give him instruction through the fleece. But he's made no guarantees that that's how he will instruct people in the future or he will instruct people now. At stake, let's remember, at this time, was the oppression and even possibly the destruction of God's people at the hands of Midian. By contrast, people, Christians, lay fleeces for much more trivial matters um, since then might not be trivial matters in their own personal lives, but in the grand scheme of salvation history, they are comparatively minor compared to what was going on in the story of Gideon. A few recent testimonies I found of people laying fleeces online from the last few years. A teacher who was unsure whether to continue in her profession. The fleece that she laid out was saying to herself, if two students write me thank you letters before the end of term, saying they've appreciated what I've been teaching them, I'll stay in teaching. And in that case, actually, she did receive those two letters. But that wasn't necessarily a guarantee that that was a sign from God. Or a full-time mother who was wondering whether or not she should go back into work, back into the workforce after raising children. And the fleece that she laid out was whether she would come across a job that allowed her to only work during school hours and only work during term time, which wasn't teaching. Um, 
I don't know the outcome of that particular one, but that was the fleece that she testified she had laid out to God. And then a man who was trying to, uh, uh, planning to buy a new car. And the fleece that he laid out was actually a clean car sponge, a big, one of those big sponges used to clean cars, uh, put in an empty dry bowl overnight to see whether it would fill with water and indicate he would buy a particular car. Well, all of those are just, in some ways, quite silly ways of testing God. They're little different, really, to the devil saying to Jesus, throw yourself from the top of the temple and see that God won't catch you with angels. They are ways of presuming on God and presuming on the ways in which he directs us. But we should not walk by the fleece, but by the book, uh, by what God has written, for sure, rather than what he might say, potentially. Like the teacher and the mother and the car buyer in my examples, often we do face big life decisions about things like work and uh, who to associate with and so on. Sometimes those decisions don't actually have a moral dimension to them. And there are equally weighted pros and cons, but we still feel like we want some divine direction about which of the options to follow. But there's no guarantee in those circumstances that laying a fleece will indicate to us what God wants out of the equal options available to us. That's just superstition. Worse, of course, is where actually a course of action is very clearly, morally, the right thing to do. And out of seeking a way of actually avoiding that course of action, we say that we're laying a fleece. Maybe it's uh, because we know it's wrong to withhold an apology for indiscretion or wrong to pursue a particular relationship or wrong to renege on an agreement that we've made already in the past. But because we really actually want to do those things, we say, I'm just going to lay a fleece, just going to make sure, just going to double check with God, just going to see if maybe he might make an exception with me. He might indicate that actually on this occasion he doesn't really mind. Who knows? He might say it's okay on this occasion. But again, that's total superstition. We know that God has made promises and we can stand on those clear promises in his clear written revelation. We don't need to be laying out fleeces to supplement that uh, in life. So let's not allow Gideon's breach of faith to become our rule of faith, but instead, instead stand on God's word. So he was a fearful leader, but he was also, despite moments of fearfulness, such as when he's told to go and fight against the Midianites, surprisingly, a faithful leader as well. And we find that in chapter 7. Chapter 7 lays out mostly the battle of Moreh, which is the big battle that Gideon's known for, the 300 against the overwhelming odds. We see the Midianite army laid out in verse 1 of chapter 7. The camp of Midian, it reads, was north of where Gideon was in the valley near the hill of Morah. A little bit after the reading we had, we read that this army was like locusts, such was their multitude covering the landscape. Uh, the camels that were with them were apparently without number. And based on the figures that we get a bit later in the narrative, we can work out that there were at least 135,000 troops there 
possibly above, up to around 150,000. Midian was uh, part of Northwest Arabia, and it was actually the land that Moses uh, fled to when he initially left Egypt. Of course, his father-in-law Jethro was the priest of Midian. But hundreds of years later, um, after that um, marriage alliance, obviously the goodwill has been forgotten, and Midian is now a great enemy of Israel. Hence, they've moved a large army into their territory. And the sight of the Midianites in the promised land was emblematic of evil itself and opposition to God. And the hymn writer J.M. Neal picked up on that in his verse when he wrote, Christian, dost thou see them on the holy grounds? How the troops of Midian prowl and prowl around. Certainly a sight that was before Gideon in the Valley of Jezreel on that day. And so he needed an army. He needed some way of taking on Midian and fulfilling this commission he'd been given by God to save Israel. And actually, he was quite successful in gathering up that army, as we found at the end of chapter 6 in verse 35 of chapter 6, that Gideon, he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. And he ends up with an army of about 32,000 troops um, from those four out of the 12 tribes of Israel, about a third of the fighting strength, we presume, of the nation of Israel. And that's still pretty bad odds against an army of 150,000 Midianites, but it's not impossible to imagine a victory under those circumstances. But it's a surprise when we read in verse 3 that God has other plans in mind. Announced to the army, he says, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Leave? But we need more troops, not fewer. Very surprising. And sure enough, a lot of them who are quite fearful, given the odds, do indeed leave, given permission to do so. 22,000, we read, go, and only 10,000 remain. Gideon, interestingly, the leader of the army, he did stay. Uh, he's obviously conquered his fear at this stage, and he's now taken trust in God's promises, and he's not among the fearful who abandon their post, but among the faithful who stay. But they're down to 10,000 against 150,000. That's now very, very hairy odds uh, on anybody's books. You need a master strategist to win a battle on those numbers. But it's a surprise again when God says you need fewer still in verse 4 of chapter 7. There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. <clears throat> if I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. And God has this interesting way of dividing up the 10,000 by saying, those who drink sort of on all fours like a dog and just lap up the water with their hands like this, those ones you can keep. But the ones who just kneel down and presumably use regular water instruments like uh, uh, satchels and cups and mugs and so on, those ones, you can send them away. Obviously, most people drink water out of uh, regular vessels, but there are obviously a few, about 300 very thirsty men who just got down to that water, hit all fours, and started lapping it up like a dog. And God said, yeah, those really thirsty ones, they're the ones you're going to keep. That's your 300 troops. Well, 
he's now down to a very, very small army. 32,000 against 150,000, that was not completely impossible. That's imaginable victory. 10,000 against 150,000, that's just imaginable under very, very good circumstances. But 300 against 150,000, that's totally bonkers. This is now in the realms of cloud cuckoo land and fairy tales. How on earth could this army beat the Midianites? Well, let's remember the reason why God has told Gideon to cut down the army to this size in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Instead of people saying, my own strength has saved me, Israel saying, my own strength has saved me, he wants an army who say, God has saved us. He has acted miraculously to save us from Midian. Uh, those who were around in the 1990s may remember the wristbands that lots of us wore, who were young perhaps at that time, WWJD, what would Jesus do? They had the initials on them. Meant to be kind of reminders which we wore around our wrists of um, acting as Jesus would act. A uh, little bit lesser known, but contemporary with those, were other wristbands that had F-R-O-G printed on them, frog, which was meant to stand for fully rely on God or fully relying on God. Well, that's what the 300 uh, in this particular battle were having to do. They were having to frog, to fully rely on God, because they certainly couldn't rely on their own strength. There was no way, humanly, that 300 could beat 150,000 Midianites. And thankfully, wonderfully, God did provide. He pulled through, fulfilled his promises, and provided Gideon with a way for 300, a strategy for 300 to beat 150,000. Uh, again, we didn't read it, we left at the cliff edge, but the answer was uh, they were gonna get some empty pots, clay jars, they were gonna get some torches and some trumpets, and they were gonna march up to the top of the hill in the middle of the night and all together smash their jars, light their torches, blow their trumpets and shout. And the impression of this was to instill great fear in the enormous Midianite army, so they all fled away um, not only off the battlefield, but indeed completely <clears throat> out of the country, across the Jordan River and back to Midian. Not so much the battle of Morah as the complete rout of Morah, because actually Gideon managed to defeat this enormous army without even swinging so much as a sword. Uh, the operation was ironically described by one of the Midianites as the sword of Gideon, even though even Gideon never even swung his sword. Perhaps appropriately, there was a 1986 TV film uh, given that title, The Sword of Gideon, about the operations of Mossad um, against terrorists, uh, a secret intelligence agency achieving results despite apparently in the international community no actual action happening. Um, and appropriate perhaps in echoing the idea of results being achieved with no actual apparent action happening on the battlefield. It was possible for Gideon to wield that sword of Gideon because he had had faith. He had overcome his fear and he had faith in God's promises and acted faithfully. Overwhelming odds, no human chance of success, but he went ahead faithfully. The promise of God is worth that much. You will save Israel, he said to Gideon earlier on. 
And that's how the life of faith can seem to us sometimes, overwhelming odds facing us in the Christian life, um, on all sorts of different fronts, uh, indifference, apathy, sometimes hostility, uh, a church in decline, individual hearts that just refuse to change. Overwhelming odds sometimes it can seem, and yet the promise of God, I will build my church. Let us therefore go forward faithfully, fully relying on God, frogging, uh, like those 300 with Gideon. Did it all end there? Is this simply a nice story of fear through to faith, of uh, apparent failure through to success? Well, no, sadly, uh, the story has taken a turn up, but it takes a turn down again before the end, because we move into chapter eight and find the third F, Gideon the foolish. After the successful and authorized battle of Mora, or the rout of Mora, there was the unauthorized second battle that Gideon organized. The troops of Midian had fled off the battlefield, had fled across the country back to Midian, and Gideon had organized a big a pursuit of them. He said to all the tribes, look, Midian's fleeing, uh, get your men together and join me in trying to cut them down. And sure enough, they go after them, they cross the river after them, they cr- follow them into Midian, and actually win a great victory at Karkor over the remaining 15,000 or so Midianites. But the win is so successful, the trophies so abundant, uh, the slaughtered kings so many, that it all goes to Gideon's head, sadly. He organizes a big gold collection of the booty from the winnings and adds up to 18 kilograms of solid gold that he collects in his satchel. And out of this uh, big lump of gold, he makes, dangerously, a golden ephod. Now, there's not a great history at this stage in the Bible to the Israelites making statues of gold um, out of bits and pieces they've collected. Remember the golden calf. It's an odd decision to make a golden ephod, and it indicates a bit of a misplaced spirituality on the part of Gideon. There was one ephod in the nation of Israel, which was the kind of chasuble-like garment worn by the high priest. And at this time, that was sitting safely in Shiloh, which is a town about 100 miles south of where Gideon lived, which is where the temporary tabernacle was living at this time during the period of the judges, before eventually Solomon would build the temple in Jerusalem. It was a very strange decision, therefore, to build a or construct a golden ephod. The original and the main ephod was not built, uh, designed, created of gold. It was woven fabrics and gemstones with the names of Israel written on them. Uh, So it's a very strange decision to make this particular object out of the booty. Now, Gideon didn't tell anybody to reverence this object that he created out of the winnings, but perhaps inevitably, they did. Because it was a semi-religious sort of object made out of a huge amount of very precious metal. And inevitably, perhaps, that combination of things attracted people to come and go on pilgrimages and come and reverence it. And the Bible says that therefore became a snare for Gideon and for his family. It doesn't give any further details, but we can imagine, uh, well, they might have thought, oh, there's a steady stream of pilgrims and tourists building up around this thing. We can make a few bucks out of this. We can further enrich ourselves on the religious trade. And it became a snare for them and for Israel, too, who fell back into paganism after Gideon's time. 
this action of Gideon's would be a little bit like if we decided to get a huge amount of gold together, make an enormous golden cross, because we know the cross is a holy thing, and we've been blessed with great wealth, therefore we'll put together a huge golden version of it. Slightly misplaced spirituality, because there is only one cross in our faith, and it doesn't need replicas. We might not tell anybody to reverence it, but perhaps inevitably people might come and do that because it's a religious object made out of a huge amount of very precious metal. Of course, that particular illustration is a little bit close to home because of where there is a small golden cross sitting at the back of our building. But that's perhaps evidence of the mixed inheritance of the Church of England, a product, as we can see there, of Victorian ritualism who perhaps didn't quite get the lesson of Gideon's foolishness. But for us, let's beware of celebrating success, whether it's from God or not, with physical objects and with lavish buildings, because God doesn't need those things. He already has everything. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, he says in Psalm 50. God is interested not in physical things, but in our hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments, says Joel. True spirituality is about internal humility, not external showiness. So let's not repeat Gideon's foolishness after he won his victories. So Gideon, a fearful leader, a faithful leader, and a foolish leader. And to conclude, what does he teach us about Christian leadership. Well, we can turn, um, as Simon's already referenced actually, to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, which contains a great list of leaders of the faith and uh, gives us instruction about remembering them and about how we should receive uh, what we read about them in the Old Testament. Verse 32 of Hebrews 11, I'll just read a few verses of this. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. A number of those uh, successes we might see in Gideon, particularly that last one about routing foreign armies, he certainly did that. It's interesting. It's not a list there of heroes of fearfulness, heroes of foolishness, but heroes of faith. That's how the New Testament remembers Gideon. It slightly forgets about chapter 6 and 8 and remembers him for his actions in chapter 7 in the middle of his account. Yes, he was a fearful leader. Yes, he was a foolish leader, but he's remembered above all for his faithfulness. What does that teach us? Well, he's a classic faith amidst failings case and reminds us that flawed leaders can sometimes be used by God for his ends. The modern age can be very damning of the slightest flaw. As soon as somebody does something wrong, it's on the internet, it's all over the place, it can be searched in an instant for the rest of time. And sometimes the wrong actions that lead to that are actually uh, genuinely and rightly career-ending. But often they're actually trivial things 
that somebody's just made a, a wrong step or they've done something stupid in their early life which they really ought to be forgiven for, but instead they're condemned for it. Now for us, the story of Gideon, Gideon should remind us to distinguish between those things that are done out of momentary fear, momentary foolishness, uh, versus those things that actually um, do uh, call into question the wider character of somebody. The repeated lesson of the book of Judges, which we see again in the story of Gideon, that we do need spiritual leaders who are provided by God's mercy. Israel enjoyed 40 years of peace as a result of Gideon's leadership. But the unique lesson, perhaps, of the story of Gideon amongst the judges, that leaders don't need to be perfect to be used by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy shown again and again to the nation of Israel and shown again and again to your people still today, despite our failings. Thank you that in Gideon we see somebody of uh, like heart with us who didn't always act rightly and who did fail. We thank you that you did nonetheless use him to lead your people into victory and into peace. Give us, we pray, a right view of leaders in that respect. Help us to hold them to a reasonable standard. In Jesus' name, amen.